Hello, I'm Jason Solomons, and this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this special edition of Sounds Jewish, we'll be reviewing the Jewish highs and lows of this last year, picking out some of my highlights from Sounds Jewish. Ed Miliband was elected first Jewish leader of the Labour Party. His Jewishness barely came up in the campaign, but this was the first question our chief inquisitor put to him on Newsnight after he was elected. It was a Jewish household. Are you a Jew? Yes, I'm Jewish. Howard Jacobson won the Booker Prize with the Finkler question, have Jews finally found their place in British culture? We'll be hearing again from that exclusive interview that Howard gave to Sounds Jewish earlier this year. And we'll be reliving one of the classic moments on this year's Sounds Jewish with Motormouth Yenters, Rona and Beverly and their homemaking tips. Did you ever find a Jewish husband or a boyfriend who used, could put up a shelf? Come on. That's fantastic. You pay someone Fair to enough. do that, and if a lesbian yeah. wants to come in and take care of okay. it, then fine. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. And joining me for this review of the Jewish year is Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland. You were a favourite of Ronner and Beverly's. They loved you. I loved them. I mean, it was fantastic. The place came alive when they were there. And if you, you know, you're just hearing them, it brings back some very happy memories. I was expecting them to go over there and grab my cheek and say, you're looking like a fine Yiddish boy. Well, you do. I'll do it for them if, <laughs> in their absence. Uh, it, it seems to me that this has been a very busy year for British Jewry. It really has, actually. I mean, listening to you just skip over some of the big highlights. I mean, the idea of a Jewish Booker Prize winner in Howard Jacobson and a Jewish leader of the Labour Party, just those things alone. And you felt around them and in the discussion that followed both of those big events, which actually came almost back to back, uh, there was a lot of discussion. We, you know, Jews were in the news this year. Well, let's delve into politics first. Your specialised topic, Jonathan Friedland, here on Sounds Jewish. After months of campaigning in the Labour leadership contest following the general election in May, Ed Miliband narrowly beat his brother David to the top job in the Labour Party last September. Although neither of them had ever concealed their Jewishness, here was arguably the first time that Ed had laid out his family story so explicitly during his keynote speech as party leader at the Labour Party conference. It starts with my dad, who with his dad got on a boat from Belgium in 1940 one of the last boats out of Belgium before the Nazis arrived in his country. At the same time, on the other side of Europe, my mum, age five, had seen Hitler's army march into Poland. My love for this country comes from this story. Two young people fled the darkness that engulfed the Jews across Europe, and in Britain they found the light of liberty. Ed Miliband, leader of the Labour Party. Uh, Jonathan Friedland, you were there in the conference hall in Manchester when that speech came out, in a way. I mean, what was the sense in the hall? Well, I think you can even hear it there. The hall was completely wrapped. I mean, it is a compelling story. He had, I have to say my own interest in it was because he did finally use the J word. I mean, it had been very noticeable to me before then that he did have a kind of passage, as all politicians do, the, the personal biog bit, the background bit. And he would talk about how his parents were Polish, they fled from Nazism. My mother, he would say, lived on Catholic papers. And I'd be sitting there in the audience thinking, and this was because they were... Say it. And he never would actually say it. He would, you know, you had to fill in the gaps yourself. Yeah. He could never actually. So, I mean, do you think Jews knew it, but it was one of those things that the Jews knew he was Jewish. But sort maybe of, not yes. And I think did. other people were a bit confused about it, you know, because if you keep identifying them as Belgian and Polish and refugees and maybe it's political, maybe that's why they fled. 
Now, what's interesting, in that formulation, he still sort of slightly tiptoed around it because he said it was the uh, the flames that engulfed the Jews around mm. them rather than my parents were Jews, that's why they had to get out. What? But it was still a step in, the, in that direction. Yeah. Why do you think previously he had been nervous about using the J word? What, 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 what on earth stigma could be attached to it? What could it have gained him or what could it have lost him previously? Well, you had a hint of it in the bit we heard at the top there from Jeremy Paxman in that interview um, where, and he dealt with it, I have to say, brilliantly in that interview and in and, and any sense that he may have been personally uncomfortable I think was laid to rest by that. It was amazingly out there. I mean, Paxman says to him, um, you know, are you a Jew? His very first question. And instead of being slightly awkward and uncomfortable and going, well, I mean, of course I am cultural or something mm. like that. He goes, yes, I'm Jewish. I don't consider a practicing Jew. I'm not a practicing Jew, no. Why not? I think it's partly because it wasn't the tradition in which I was brought up. My parents were part of a left tradition, a sort of left community, if you like, not so much a Jewish tradition. And so, you know, I feel very kind of Jewish in terms of my family history, uh, as I talked about yesterday. But not, I'm not a per, don't consider myself a person of religious faith. He almost implied that he kind of regretted that his parents hadn't brought him up with um, with religious tradition, as if to say, if they had, he would have been. Indeed, it was amazing that uh, that Paxman brought that up so quickly as well. Um, why, why do you think Paxman went in with that? Do you think he was trying to test out the water if he was not just using the, 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 a Nazi story to gain some kind of political sentimentality? Well, I think he felt that Ed Miliband had opened up the personal by that using that passage, and I think he legitimately felt. Felt that that was um, it was the bit, uh, you know a big fact about him that truly had not been discussed. I mean, when the race came down to Ed versus David, it was then clear Labour was going to have its first ever Jewish leader. And I just think if it had been an Asian leader, a black leader, that would have been a central part of the discussion. And for some reason, it wasn't. And it's partly because people are awkward and uncomfortable. You know, you saw that thing about you said use the word Jew, and then Ed Miliband says Jewish, yeah. and you know people don't know quite how to word it. I my own view of the whole Labour contest was it was intensely Jewish because what was the paradigm? We were watching played out there, but Jacob and Esau. Yes, all Cain and Abel. I've heard. Well, which is that's more murderous. Yes, exactly. But you know, but Jacob and Esau specifically, it isn't. It doesn't end in a murder, but it ends in Jacob's the younger brother stealing from his older brother his birthright. Uh, and this is how many people in the David mm. camp. Uh, did feel uh, that's how they saw this contest. And, and uh, you know, it was interesting. I got a message, a text message from one of Ed Miliband's core people saying, you know, is there a Jewish reason why this brothers thing plays so big? Because this person had noticed that other people maybe were okay about the whole brothers story, but particularly Jewish people in Labour really did seem kind of freaked out by it. And I did sort of, you know, have to walk him through the Jacob and Esau story. One thing that does occur is if you've got two sibling rivals um a, a jewish mother would be naturally very proud of their son who's become leader of the labor party this jewish mother must be terribly split i know and i feel for her actually because you know this should be a moment of great nachas uh, great pleasure and pride in any parent seeing their son reach this elevator and instead it has to be bittersweet you know instead with every ounce of celebration in her system there's also regret that she's seen her el uh, oldest son somehow uh, uh, disappointed and that is in a way they feel something very jewish about that you can't have the good news without the bad you know you cannot have the joy without the tears you can't there's, have the mozza and the herosis without the, the without the, the, the bitter, the, the, herbs. The bitter and, herbs and that must be her experience <laughs> exactly life is a mozza after all <laughs> To 
2010 was a year in which Jews became prominent in culture as well, with Howard Jacobson's The Finkler Question finally winning the author the coveted Booker Prize. Sounds Jewish had an exclusive interview with Howard back in September, and here was the only place he talked about the theme of Jewish anti-Zionism. Where other interviewers focused on his themes of friendship and loneliness, I ventured forth and asked Howard what made him turn his ire on Jewish anti-Zionist groups in Britain. The novel had been conceived before Operation Cast Lead, the Israeli invasion of airborne invasion of Gaza, and it was being written at the time of that. And it was being written at the time when, as it seemed to me, certainly as I wrote in some of my articles, wild things were being said um, about Israel, about what Israel was doing, and indeed, um, as a consequence of that, sometimes about Jews. And at a time when perfectly reasonable Jews, it seemed to me, paused to ask themselves, was it possible, was it possible that there was spilling out of attitudes to Israel um, a new form of anti-Jewishness? Was Israel creating a new form of anti-Jewishness? Was Israel an opportunity for an old form of anti-Jewishness that had never gone away to speak itself again? But anyway, however one explained it, was it growing dangerous to be a Jew in England? The unique voice of Howard Jacobson there, talking to Sounds Jewish back in September. Uh, His book contained an attack on the so-called ashamed Jews, uh, a very strong passage in the book, uh, which leapt out at me, uh, Jonathan Freeland. Uh, did the Jewish community celebrate uh, Howard's victory? It's very odd because I got uh, several people who are non-Jews came up to me after Howard won and sort of said, oh, you must be very proud. Congratulations. I like, took one for the community. Well, that's really interesting. I didn't know that that had been how it had been perceived externally, but it certainly felt like that internally. By, by a quirk, I happened to be at the first Jewish communal event Howard did after uh, and look, we call him by his first name. He's sort of Isles now, isn't he? <laughs> but that Howard Jacobson did after winning the Booker Prize. It was at a gun Wietzow event in Finchley Synagogue. So and, what, this would be for, for the women, the Zionist women's the organization? Gun Wietzow mm. being a women's Zionist organization. But in other words, a very sort of cosy internal Anglo-Jewish event. And he arrived, as all Jewish occasions are, but understandably, given what's going on with him, he arrived late. And everyone, of course, is still milling around because Jewish events always begin half an hour late. And there was a spontaneous ovation for him. As soon as he appeared, people just were so proud of him. And I think that there were several things going on there. I mean, partly it's because the book is about Jewish life and it's about the Jewish communities. Uh, That's first. Second, he has always been, there are lots of Jews in culture, Mm. but he identifies specifically within the Jewish community. That event he did for a women's Zionist organization, he does those all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was booked there before. He, he was won. booked he there before, beforehand, yeah. exactly. Just happened to be straight after the prize. And he didn't cancel. He didn't go all Hollywood and say, I'm too big for this now, too big for the fundraisers in, of a women's group in Finchley. He turned up. And, the, uh, and, and any day of the week, if you looked at a Jewish communal calendar, you know, in Didsbury and in Newton Mans in Glasgow or in, uh, or in Hendon, there would be a Howard Jacobson event. He's of the community. And there it's are like other... Led Zeppelin. He, to- he, <laughs> he earns his right by touring, unremitting but it. We, you know, and he does his share of big prestige events, but he hasn't, he's, he's never turned his back on or disdained the Jewish community. Uh, plus, the content of the book is a very intimately Jewish subject. So I think when he was nominated, there was a feeling of communal pride. People like him personally. They have huge affection for him. And they think he's, he is but definitely our most talented writer. Why, why do you think I knew that he, this book would win him the Booker Prize? I, knew, I hadn't even read all the other the bookers and I knew that this that he'd, he'd been bubbling under for a long time in the way that awards do it the Oscars sometimes you can tell well it's someone's turn I thought the, the in some ways the opposite I mean I, I think he'd written other books that were brilliant books and that you just thought okay this surely where re- review saying it's a work of genius Kaluki Knights to my mind and for my money his masterpiece 
didn't uh, didn't win. No, it didn't. Think- I don't think it made it on the shortlist. No, it didn't. And and suddenly comes up with this, which is at first glance much more narrow and in you know inward looking. I mean, he's not just talking about the Jewish community. He is talking about a tiny splinter of the Jewish community. Probably Jewish anti-Zionists in Britain number less than two hundred people, and yet that is his subject. And so I thought actually, especially because he's very trenchantly uh, hostile. To anti-Zionism. He's not quite a Zionist in this book, but he is an anti-anti-Zionist. Exactly. And I didn't know how well that would go down with the cultural elite. And one thing I noticed afterwards, and I thought this was fascinating, and you picked up on it in your intro to this, everyone else with the noble and heroic exception of Sounds Jewish kept on pretending that this book was about love and loss and ageing. And, you know, and Howard actually went along with this in a lot of the media interviews. And it's a bit about that. Yeah. But staring you in the face, it's about Jews and anti-Zionism and Jews who themselves turn against Israel and you can't and that sort of became the elephant in the room that all the sort of slightly more tinkly tinkly lacy embroidered critics and the quality press and radio for pretending there were several, it wasn't the there subject. Were several people in the quality press who pretended it wasn't being about it wasn't being about about Judaism at all or being Jewish at all no they didn't uh, mention which it I mean, ultimately you know in, in the way that Fiddler on the Roof isn't you know it could be about any community but it, I mean it's a very Jewish story well it is like saying Fiddler on the Roof that memorable musical about parenthood and the nuclear family <laughs> yes. you know uh, and something else <laughs> yeah, and in a way it. it's like discussion about ed you know you keep wanting to say you know and why and radio 4 was like that the next morning and i think howard slightly went along with it because he thought maybe it's a less frightening prospect to people but the book is about jews it's about british jews and the reason partly i want to just stress this point the reason partly why the community embraced it was until then and how jacobson himself used to make this point that in britain if you wrote a kind of uh, an overtly black novel uh, people would say that's a great british novel if you wrote an asian novel set in the asian community it's a british novel you wrote a jewish novel it's a jewish novel uh, and that's what he kept uh, hit coming up against. And now I think the Booker Prize has said, if you write a novel about British Jews, yes, you're, that's a British novel. And therefore you, British Jews, are one thread in the tapestry that makes up this society. And I think that's people took it as a kind of recognition and acknowledgement and they welcomed it. I hope there's not the, the sort of the be honest, like we've given you your prize. That's it for now. No more <laughs> Jewish novels. You know, this is it. But <laughs> yes, I, that's I, right. I, you I got one. Yeah, more Jewish. More Jewish. Although Israel is never far from any debate here on Sounds Jewish, it's interesting that we actually really didn't cover that many stories coming from Israel itself. Uh, There was the flotilla story, which flared up in May. Uh, It seemed to me, Jonathan, that perhaps Israel was less of of an an internationally hot topic this year. Or or is it just it's sort of not people got bored of it, but it was we had a lot we had enough going on here domestically to kind of, you know, put that into the shadows. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, in, in, in the, the first glance, what you would say is it's true that it was in the news less that week or two or three that was dominated by the uh, the Turkish flotilla uh, in the waters off Gaza. Uh, that uh, was big news when it happened. But, you know, compared to other years where there's actually been a hot war, as there was over 2008-9 in Gaza and Operation Cast Lead, uh, it, was, it wasn't front and centre. That would be the sort of immediate in some ways sort of, sort of uh, superficial answer. The deeper answer may be and that something is going on in Jewish communities around the world and there's no reason why Britain should be an exception, which is that communities are finding their own feet in their own place and they are no longer seeing themselves as purely satellites around the, you know, the sun of Israel, but actually having their own concerns. Now, there is, this is something that I think some people in the pro-Israel community are getting 
uh, anxious about. And, um, you know, one event in the year, a landmark event, would have been an article that appeared in the New York Review of Books by Peter Beinart, an American Jewish strongly Zionist journalist, wrote a piece of the arresting headline, The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment. And in there, he reported that young American Jews are turning their backs on Israel. They, um, partly because they're liberal and they see Israel as illiberal, but mainly uh, they are, they've got their own concerns, their own communities, their own lives. And um, in a way, the idea that the sounds Jewish year was not dominated by Israel could be reflecting that, that we have our own cultural lives in these diaspora communities uh, and they are flourishing. <laughs> That sounds like a very good time to actually look back at uh, some of the comic highlights of 2010 in the Jewish year. Uh, here in Sounds Jewish, we actually covered quite a lot of ground on that culturally here in the UK. We were blessed, however, with the visit of Motormouth Yenters Rona and Beverly. How can I describe them? Rona sort of looked like a middle-aged Rod Stewart Beverly. <laughs> she had lip gloss. She had lots of bling. They were performing a show at the Soho Theatre here in London prior to going up to Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival. Or should I say they were performing a kind of mitzvah, helping people with their relationships. In this clip here from the Sounds Jewish studio, Rona and Beverly discussed making over one of their A-list clients. Don Draper from Mad Men. You fixed him? He's oh. back with Betsy? Yeah. Newsflash, he doesn't need much fixing. Yeah. But, he's perfect. But he, he smells, you know what he smells John like? Ham. He, he smells, smells like cigarettes. Scotch and testicles. Yes. Yeah. But in a good way. Yeah. Maybe Clean. you'll get this in Edinburgh. There's a lot of people that smell yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, so, well hopefully. Yeah. The yeah. American version, the yeah. clean version, yeah. not the uh, yeah. I've been wearing these jeans for yeah. three weeks version. Yeah. So can, can you can you do a little live doctoring here? Can you sort me out? Well, well, we, well, I mean, well, just from looking, what can you tell? You I mean, got a trouble. wedding ring on. You're wearing so a wedding ring. Yes. But I don't know on. what sort of a relationship you're in. Yeah. But it's a married relationship. Yeah. Is it? Is, are you, are, are, are you, are you, is it with a woman it, or a gentleman? It's with a woman, a very lovely woman. Because there's nothing wrong with that. Because <laughs> I love gay men. I don't like gay women. Yeah. You know, I like... Funnily enough, I don't mind. What? The Which gay one? woman. No, what? They all look like they're going to come in and fix your sink. Of course yeah, he that, does. And that to that's me is very useful. Exactly. No. Exa- wait, did you ever find a Jewish husband or a boyfriend who used, could put up a shelf? Come on. That's fair. You that's pay someone fair to enough. do that, and if a lesbian yeah. wants to come in and take care of okay. it, then fine. Ronna and Beverly, there. well, they, they were sorting me out. I mean, I felt, I sort of felt cleansed from them. They were like a, a feng shui. Did you? I felt kind of mildly exhausted by them. I <laughs> yeah. thought they were wonderful. Uh, and they are aged. I mean, they're basically playing, aren't they? Middle-aged or New Jersey, New York, the accents they've got perfectly. Mm. New York, the kind of women who wear velour tracksuits. Uh, but they are so convincing that you actually interact with them as their personas completely. I don't want to see what they're like in real life and I, I i can't imagine what they're what they're in the normal life i don't think they've got any you know they've got nothing to offer me but no. just as john ronner and beverly you want to kind of embrace I, I mean, them, I, everything they say i sort of take to heart Back to domestic politics in 2010 and to the much talked about rise of the bnp in the weeks leading up to the general election Nick Griffin focused much of his campaign on winning the Barking and Dagenham seat off the Labour incumbent Margaret Hodge. Now, I have to say I and many others were worried that Margaret Hodge would be soundly defeated, but I breathed a sigh of relief on election night when her trouncing of Nick Griffin was announced. And Margaret Hodge gave a very memorable victory speech. On behalf of all the people in Britain, we in Barking have not just beaten, but we have smashed the attempt of extremist outsiders. The message from Barking to the BNP is clear. 
Get out and stay out. Now it's easy to look back in retrospect and think, oh, OK, well, the BNP were not that big a threat after all. But at the time, as you say, people did think they were about to gain their first Westminster seat. And she was really the last line of resistance because that was seen as the seat that could go. Uh, and not only did she win, but there, and that's what she referred to by saying we've um, comprehensively re- rebuffed them. Uh, they lost they had a lot of seats on. They were the official opposition embarking on the council. They lost all of that. They were just swept away. And uh, and that huge credit goes to her for that. The Jewish community were watching it very closely and uh, and piling a lot of people down in there, down to Barkingham Dagenham to campaign, to knock on doors, etc. And it's fascinating to me the extent to which the Jewish community still does really mobilise around that issue. It's the one thing that can sort of wake, really wake them up, I feel, and can energise them as well. It's the spectre. Do you think it's the spectre of, of ghosts from the past that all come up in, in one. When you mention the BNP, it goes back to National Front, it goes further back, and it goes all the way back to, I suppose, Mosley. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. And what, it's fascinating because the community generally, there's a lot of data on this, has shifted rightward. The Jewish community in Britain did like Tony Blair, and so there was a lot of uh, Jewish votes for Labour in that period. But generally, over decades, the Jewish community has gone rightward. And and, the, and you add that to the fact that the BNP's main target are Muslims uh, and, and, and non-white Britons, you would think, in a way, Jews would be just less exercised about the BNP. But that is absolutely not the case. And they really do mobilise. And people dip in their pocket to make donations to the Hope Not Hate campaign. And as I said, younger Jews were down there canvassing. They do still believe that whatever the BNP say publicly about Muslims, etc., the people that Britain's uh, fascists really hate are Jews. I think one thing about British Jews is who, who they don't profess to be experts in many areas. You know, DIY, etc., is not. The thing. But uh, seeing off fascism. This, this we're interested in, this we can do, this we can show you how to do this. And I think it does stir a very a proud urge, it's an urge I'm proud of, but also it's, a, it's something of pride in the Jewish uh, communal heart, mm. which is that we did rise up against Oswald Mosley, we did send him packing uh, out of uh, Cable Street mm. in 1936, and, so, and that's still a message uh, that resonates, uh, e- even now all these years later. Add into that the fact that Griffin is, uh, has flirted with, at the very least, Holocaust denial, uh, and, so, and his movement is on the outer edges uh, or, or, uh, on the far right, the community know where they stand on that. Well, even if they have gone rightward on other issues, they have no tolerance, no indulgence. The very opposite. They were frightened of the BNP and were determined to crush it. One of the strange things that did come out of Nick Griffin's kind of prominence in, in, in election time uh, was that he, he actually sort of had uh, admiration and support of Israel. Uh, and that was, it was sort of uncomfortable for British Jews. Was like, well, that was that moment. He did say it. There was that moment on question time when he said that we, the BNP, were the only party that supported Israel during the Gaza conflict. And there was definitely huge Jewish discomfort at that. I mean, this is another story of 2010, uh, which is you have the rise of this new right-wing group, the uh, English Defence League, so-called the EDL, which turns up, does protests uh, in support of Israel. It waves the Israeli flag. These, this is just the old uh, NF crowd, reformed skinheads and, and boot boys uh, now wearing the colours of the EDL. Uh, and um, the Jewish community it has been so clear, actually, in its official message, which is, we don't care that you have this pro-Israel rhetoric. We want no part of it. We think it's a trick because you're only pro-Israel because you think that's a posture to be in because basically you're anti-Muslim and with friends like that who needs enemies so uh, the Jewish community so far has been very clear but it does show you that the right in repositioning thinks somehow if it can brand itself as as pro-Jewish it can shake off its uh, fascist associations but the Jews are seeing through that and they're not buying it. Yeah we're smarter than that. Uh, Margaret Hodge did say the BNP have gone that was your resounding message you're out 
I suspect that they just go away and grow another head. Well, that's sort of what people are thinking, I think, about the EDL. It does seem as if they just regrouped under that. The BNP itself, though, have turned in on themselves. There is a fight, apparently a leadership challenge against Nick Griffin. So maybe they are going to turn in on themselves. And yeah, we'll have to look elsewhere. One of the Jewish cinematic highlights of the year was David Baddiel's debut as the creator and writer of The Infidel last May. There have been very few British Jewish films and an even smaller handful of British Muslim films, but the number of British Jewish Muslim films is just one. The story of the infidel goes like this. What if a Muslim Londoner found out he was adopted and his birth name was in fact Solly Shimshilovitz? And what if, said Solly, played by Omid Jalili, had to live his life as a Jew in order to meet his birth family? Say your Shema. I beg your pardon? Your Shema, the Lord's Prayer. Oh, don't tell me he hasn't taught. Uh, well, name the five books of Moses. Yeah, I can do this. <clears throat> uh, Genesis. Uh, in Hebrew. In Hebrew? Genesis. What's Hebrew for Phil Collins? Exodus. Okay, I've had quite No, listen, listen, Rabbi. My friend has drunk my chicken soup. He's danced like a Cossack in my living room. He told a funny story at a bar mitzvah. And by the way, he got a big laugh. I'm a Jew. And my friend here is Jewish enough for me. Come back when you found a better teacher. When David Baddiel came to the Sounds Jewish studio, I asked him what made him approach the subject of Jews and Muslims, with both groups known for their extreme sensitivity. I've got a slightly Tourette's problem with, with writing, in general with life, uh, which is that if I have an idea or I have something I want to say, I kind of say it first and then um, realise afterwards that people might not like it or whatever. Um, and uh, that's what I did with this. I just thought it sounded like a good idea for a film. Um, around myself has hung a, a sort of bit of ethnic ambiguity. When I was first on TV, people thought I was a Pakistani. I used to get fan letters from young Pakistani women saying, you're the funniest Pakistani comedian I've ever seen. And I would keep those fan letters because, you know... So is there, a, is there a, an urge in you here? Well, the classic thing is that as a Jewish comedian yourself, you can do Jewish gags, but no other... Non, non Jew no, can I do Jewish gags. No, I don't think that. you think they're allowed to do them? I, I don't think that anymore. I, you know, I've never really thought that. But I no think, one does. I think, I think, well, but I think with jokes, you just you can't say you can't do jokes about another culture. Non Jews can't do jokes about Jews. Of course they can. You just have to look at it sort of joke by joke basis. And so it's is not... this an exercise in, in proving that, that this kind of new kind of I know ceiling has been broken? In well, I, yeah, that wasn't the reason I wrote it. I wrote it because I thought it was a good idea for a story. But yes, once I started to write it, and I guess my feeling about it now is there's no reason why you can't do jokes about culture and ethnicity. Is that the word? Ethnicity, I think is the word. You can do jokes about it as long as they're not coming from a racist perspective, which I promise you they're not. Uh, Jonathan Freeland, you're still here. You saw the film uh, The Infidel. Uh, what, what did you go when you heard about the film first, before you'd actually seen it, because there were a lot of Jews past comment before seeing stuff on this film. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was brave in a way just to wade into this territory because you're just you going to bound to uh, offend somebody. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that David Baddiel wasn't himself in it, that he had this Omid Jalili, who fascinatingly is neither Muslim nor Jewish. He's actually a Baha'i. So I was really intrigued by it, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny, and, um, and I, th- I thought it was 
trying to do something genuinely brave. And also just, this is probably being over PC about it, but I did like the fact that it tried to say underneath all the gags, and there are, the gags are good and there's very funny people in it, people we love on this program, I'm sure, Tracy Ann Oberman <laughs> and David Schneider, all our friends are there. Um, what I liked is that underneath it was saying something which I think is true, that if you can get beyond the Middle East stuff, Jews and Muslims actually do have a lot in common. Now they're trying to say so much in common, you could be the same person in the film, and that's obviously a, a deliberate fictional device. But it does say that, and, I, and, I, and I'm always open to that message. It did have one of my favourite sequences of the year, which is the Jewish tra- Training montage, which you don't get enough, which is one, one of which is look is watching Fiddler on the Roof. That's yes. about uh, nuclear family. It's the sort of Pygmalion <laughs> structure where instead of turning Eliza Doolittle into a lady, he's trying to turn uh, Omid Jalili into a Jew, and he has to teach him how to shrug and how to talk, eat a bagel. And you know, it's it, it was good fun, and uh, even if a little bit predictable in that little sequence, overall, I think it was great fun, and I applauded it. Uh, it didn't actually sort of shatter the mainstream. It wasn't a great hit, which is surprising. And you know, if all the Jews and all the Muslims had actually gone to see this film, it could have made it a really big hit but I've got a suspicion that, that neither Cam actually really went to see it. Well although what, the one thing David says and, I, and I think, I'm sure he's right is that this was really well received in the Muslim community because and they, it's funny it took a Jew to do this but they said what they liked is how normal the Muslim family was. Yeah. In other words Omid Jalidi's character watched Spurs, he was a you know he was swore. He, and he lived uh, in a normal house. Lived in a normal yeah. house and their point was that you know when do you see Muslims on TV that aren't about to be suicide bombers or have to be p- persuaded not to be suicide. Instead this was a normal Muslim family, flawed, warts and all. And I and apparently he got very, very good response from Muslim audiences who welcomed that. And again, that's something to admire about it, the film. It's a film that may go down in history as a watermark moment, if you like, because, uh, you know, it, it felt in a way that, uh, that there was a new Jewish voice here. David Baddiel, I think, will be a very smart scriptwriter uh, for many years to come. Uh, do you think that there was, that we had Grandma's House on the TV? We've got Friday Night by Robert Popper coming out next year. They're filming that as we speak. Uh, do you think there was a sort of Jewishness in the mainstream? A sort of slight a, a pride coming out here? I think so. I think it's been building for a while and it's particularly um, uh, visible in the younger generation of Jews who are just much more sort of out uh, to borrow the language of sort of gay uh, politics and uh, I think that's f- uh, beginning to percolate upward and so what's really interesting is artists who've had mainstream success who could do uh, if you like anything uh, and once just did stuff that had nothing to do with Jews, come back to the Jewish stuff. And that, to me, is really interesting. There's David Baddiel. He's played Wembley Arena. He doesn't need to do a smaller Jewish story. And in the end, the best stories he thinks are in his own, the community he was raised in. Uh, and you see someone like Howard Jacobson. Again, any topic is open to him, and yet he cannot help himself. Like the character in The Godfather, every time I try and leave, they pull me back in. He is constantly drawn to Jewish material. So at the older end and the younger end, I think people are more comfortable with being Jewish and feel they have stories to tell. Jonathan Friedland, thank you so much for coming on Sounds Jewish. Every time you try and leave the studio we pull you back in and, and we wouldn't have it any other way. And maybe in 2011 who knows, a Jewish winner of the X Factor maybe We can pray. Can we can happen. hope. Can That's all for this month's Sounds Jewish. My thanks to Jonathan Friedland of course and to the Jewish Community Centre for London our sponsors. We're taking a break next month so happy holidays. We'll be back in the new year with more. From me, Jason Solomons and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters goodbye and happy new year. Salam, shalom shalom